tell legal lies. I tell legal lies. Lies, lies, legal lies. I tell legal lies. Tell legal lies. Tell legal lies. Tell legal lies. Ban on drugs. Ban on drugs. Ban legal lies. Welcome back to another episode of Black Law and Legal Lies. This is our first episode of our second year. Yay. Um, Today, we're doing things a little different. Both of my co-hosts are MIA. I've been sick all week, and I've actually transferred my sickness to Becky, so she's in bed. Um, and it's just MIA. I don't know where the fuck she at. The Saints lost, so uh, probably something with that and alcohol. Mix that together and, you know, MIA. So I'll be your host today, as usual. You can follow the show on Twitter at Black Law Podcast. You can follow me, Dan, at I am Dan on Drugs. And I am joined by regular guest host, Paul from Charlotte. Yo, Paul, what up? Hey, Dan on Drugs. What's going on, man? Yo, Paul, it's, it's just us today. Um, What we're going to discuss is gentrification. That's something that I think both of us are familiar, pretty familiar with, at least. Yeah, we from the D.C. area. That's one of the earliest um, areas, major areas that I think gentrification started and took uh, hold. So um, we definitely know all about that. You know, D.C. area and, you know, down in Louisiana, uh, seems like it's everywhere now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, please forgive me if I sound congested. I am sick. Um, but anyway, we're gonna move forward. I actually, I think San Francisco was like one of the very first cities to get gentrified, followed by, if I'm not mistaken, uh, New York and then D.C. That's just I don't have that up as a stat. Just guessing. I believe it. California's been expensive for a long time. The thing about New York, though, is even though they've been gentrified, it's so big, you still can live there. You know, our hometown, you can't live there. There's really nowhere to go in the D.C. area, period, unless you want to struggle. So, uh, you know, at least in some of those other areas in New York and the North, it's so big geographically, there are still, you know, moderately priced places for people to go to. Yeah, we have to move in the D.C. area. We have to move over an hour away and it's still expensive. Like, um, well, I guess we'll we'll get into that in a second. What I want to do is define gentrification, because I know a lot of people hear the word thrown around a lot. And just to be perfectly clear on what it is, gentrification, according to Wikipedia, is a process of renovating deteriorated urban neighborhoods by means of the influx of more affluent residents. This is common and a controversial topic in politics and urban planning. Gentrification can improve the material quality of a neighborhood while also potentially forcing relocation of current established residents and businesses, causing them to move from a gentrified area seeking lower cost housing and stores. So that's basically what gentrification is in a nutshell. Now, it sounds a lot less, what's the word I want to use here, menacing when you read it like that. But I mean, I know majority of my family has completely left the D.C. area. Majority of my friends have left the D.C. area. Like no one, if you didn't buy and own your house prior to about 2000-ish, you can't afford to live there. Like you have to make, I want to say about 150k a year with no kids to be able to live around the DC area. Does that sound about right to you? 
Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And you know, if anyone's listened to this show in the past, they, you know, they, I'm pretty sure they're familiar somewhat with my background. Um, you know, I, I, I had a good government job, fire department up there, and I made decent money, and I still struggled. You know, even if you're making eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand, hundred fifteen, hundred twenty thousand, even, I mean, yeah, you can live comfortably if you're making a hundred twenty, hundred thirty, hundred fifty, but at the same time. You know, you're still living in a way that people from maybe, you know, I'll say where I'm living now, Charlotte, for example, would look mm-hmm. at if they went to visit and say, you know, damn, this all you got? <laughs> so, you know, you, yeah, you can live there decent, live a you know comfortable life of 150, but at the same time, if you want to live inside the Beltway, it still may not totally be sufficient. You know, I, I think we're in danger back home of, getting in a situation like in some areas of California. Um, I remember when I was looking to leave Fairfax Fire Department is where I worked, and I was looking into how much departments made all over the country. It's funny because in New Orleans, before Katrina, their fire department made like $19,000. So I immediately <laughs> yeah. said, I'm not moving to Louisiana. But I looked into California, and their firefighters were starting at 90 something thousand dollars a year. So I could only imagine what the cost of living for that area must have been. I'm pretty sure $90,000 was close to minimum wage as far as whatever the relative cost of living was there's no way I, yeah. i'd love to hear from some people that actually went through the gentrification of places in california like los angeles um san francisco places like that because i'm i'm pretty sure it happens the same way everywhere so this is what i saw happen i lived in an all black um it, well mostly black neighborhood low-income housing and we would see one white person move into the neighborhood. They the houses sold for probably between eighty and one hundred and ten thousand dollars row houses. Uh, you know, you have a white family move in. They'd hang around for maybe a year and realize, hey, buddy, this might not be the neighborhood for me. So they leave. Then down the line, um, same thing. Another white family would move in. Uh, we'd pretty much terrorize all the white neighbors. Like we had this one dude, Nick, next door that we used to fuck (laughs) with him all the time. Like we would climb on his porch and cut his plants down and just a bunch of shit being badass kids. We were like little badass kids. So anyway, um, yeah, then the next, the next white family will move out. So what they were doing, that's almost like a, a beta testing. So the first white family that would move into the neighborhood, neighborhood still kind of rough. So they're like, uh, nah, nah, this ain't the place for me. So word of mouth. Hey, yeah, you might not want to move to this particular neighborhood. So then what happens is the cost of living starts to go up in the other areas of the city. So it again makes these neighborhoods look more enticing. So what they do, they come back in. You got a new generation of white families moving in. But this time they're staying. And rather than saying, you know what, fuck these guys, they're calling the police on us like, hey, these guys are hanging out selling drugs on the street or they're cutting my plants, whatever, whatever the case may be. So rather than be run off, they stay. So then they go on to tell their friends that, hey, it's not such a bad area, you know. Once you call the police on these guys a couple of times, they they leave you the fuck alone. So then they'll have a friend move into the neighborhood. Friend says, hey, you're right. It's not so bad over here. Another friend. So this third friend actually owns a coffee shop. Yeah, I'm going to bring my coffee shop to the neighborhood. And that's the first sign. Whenever you see a Starbucks or any kind of boutique coffee shop where there has been historically no coffee shops, you're being gentrified. So that's basically how it happens, though, is... 
you know, it's you got a bunch of beta testers until one says, okay, we can do this. So then that brings more and more families in. And um, I'm using my neighborhood as an example. So it was white people, 100 um, percent. They it starts to drive the the cost of my neighborhood up, which is you would think good for the people in the neighborhood, but not very many people own their homes in my neighborhood. They were all renters. So what that did was jacked up the rent. And there was a lot of Section 8 houses. And the homeowners are like, well, fuck Section 8. Because now instead of getting $600 a month, I can get someone to pay me like eight, $900 a month and have a better quality renter. And y'all can't see my air quotes, but I'm using air quotes. So they do that. Next thing you know, you look up and 20 to 25 percent of your neighborhood is white. And you're like, whoa, you're seeing white people walking down the streets with their dogs and shit in places, again, historically, you would not see. So that that's just the beginning of gentrification. And that's not science. That's just what I saw. And it got to the point where nowadays when I go back to visit my old neighborhood, it's about 90 percent white. And I get looked at funny, like I don't belong there when I'm there. So, uh, Paul, how do you think gentrification happens? You brought up Nick, and Nick was like, like you said, the first uh, visible version in, in Del Rey of impending gentrification. But I will say one thing about Del Rey is it's been a lot slower there than it was in the rest of the city. I'm going to say in Alexandria, the first uh, sign of the gentrification coming were those condos they built right across the street from the project. They were, I remember this is probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, they tore down one of the old warehouses and they built these condos and they were advertised for $1 million. And I remember back then looking and said, wow, $1 million, man, that's crazy. But now, you know, everything is a $1 million minimum. Yep. And they built it right next to the projects. And it's, fun, it's funny because the projects are still there, actually. Um, you know, so they've been holding on strong. Meanwhile, everywhere else surrounding it has been built up. They tore down another side of the projects and built uh, uh, townhouses. Um, you know, the thing is with Delray versus the projects is most of the, the entire old town where the projects were as public housing, which means they're limited in what they can do when it comes to demolishing those units. There's a lot of laws they have to follow as opposed to if you're in a neighborhood where you, where people own their houses, um, you know, such as uh, Delray, because a lot of them are Section 8, uh, and, you know, a lot of the row houses in Old Town that weren't a part of the projects, they were owned by families for, you know, almost 100 years. Mm-hmm. So it's so much easier for investors to come in and tell a struggling black family, poor family, that lives in a house that they've had for a long time that's kind of a burden on the family because it's so decrepit and old and just come in and say, hey, I'll give you 20000 for your house right now. And people that are struggling, especially in the, in, you know, we're coming from the era when, you know, heroin hit in the 70s, crack hit in the 80s and 90s, and it was just, we, li- we came from the most violent, drug-infested areas. So these communities were in shambles. So you say, hey, here's some money, you know, you can, you know, give me, give me this house, I'll give you 20, 30, 40,000, and people were taking it. So you mm-hmm. saw a mass exodus of families leaving, you know, the houses that they've owned, whether it be in Delray or in, in you know, uptown. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they turn around and the houses sell for one, two, three, four, five million, some even 10, 15 million. That were multifamily uh, row houses, you know, and, and people are looking back now like, geez, how did this happen? It's a slow process. But the reason why I think Del Rey was slower is because a lot of those houses were Section 8. Yeah. Since they're Section 8, they have a lot of the landlord tenant laws they have to follow. They can't just put you out when they want. 
and then the process of trying to sell, it's not like, you know, let me give you an example. My father told me in the late 70s he had a friend that offered him to partner up and buy a whole block of um, row houses in Alexandria. He said, no, man, nobody's ever going to want to live here. It was like 20000 for the whole block. Well, they did that again in the 90s. They were buying houses by the block versus if you're in Delray where some of the people own, some of the people are, you know, Section 8, you can't just buy them all like that. You can't buy them all at one go. Right. So it takes a while to get these people put out. But now you, you go back home, you'll see that it's almost finished now. <laughs> They've they pretty much gotten hold of Delray too now. So, you know, stay for a few more areas in Chiralagua and, and all of it. You know, they tore down a Glee Park. I mean, they, they tore down so many areas. It's pretty much done. Yeah, man. And what's what's wild about that is, like you like you said, it is a slow process. But once you're in the last, like, let's break it down into percentages. Once once 75% of it is done, the last 25%, I mean, it, it'll almost make it look like it happened overnight. That's how fast that they get the remaining uh, residents out of there. So, I mean, what... What are your thoughts on gentrification as a whole? I'm not a fan of it, but it's funny. It, well, I'm not going to say I'm not a fan. If living in Charlotte, I, before, when I moved here, I said Charlotte reminds me of the Washington, D.C. area, um, like it was in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. When I first moved to Charlotte five years ago, you could still get brand new houses for $90,000. Um, it was a lot of undeveloped land, a lot of vacant buildings, neighborhoods. Now I'm seeing condos and townhouses go up like crazy. You know, I've seen five, six new high-rises go up uptown, rents going up. For, I mean, not rents, I'm sorry, uh, 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 you know, condos and stuff selling for, you know, it used to be 300000 was a lot of money. Now you're seeing them 800000 900000 in neighborhoods that were distressed only three years ago. Right. So the problem is I understand why some areas need to get redeveloped. I'm going to use D.C. as an example. Um, later on, we're going to talk about Sursum Quarter, which is a, a co-op neighborhood, and that was in, that's in Washington, D.C., a lot of these areas that ended up with these public housing units on them or that are being gentrified now were areas that were in D.C. burned down after the King riots. I remember even as recently as 2001 when I worked in Embassy Road, um, if you went a few blocks over, you know, you would see empty plots of land that were, you know, burnt out buildings from 30 years prior from the Martin Luther King riot. So a, a thing that happened in D.C. is some of these early gentrification projects were, you know, rehabbing and rebuilding on vacant land that's been vacant for decades that were, you know, strewn with crackheads and, and, and violence and drug markets. So in that respect, I don't mind it. But the problem is you get humans are in, you, you never can benefit when there's a dollar amount put to human life. And that's pretty much what it is. You start to see neighborhoods and you say, okay, we got, you know, 1,000 tenants here. Um, you know, we can get rid of these guys. We can put maybe 50 or 100 of them as low income or, you know, rent controlled in this new development. And then we can get rid of these guys and we can sell the rest for, you know, 600000 Or we can rent the rest for 3000 a month. That's right. where the issue is because it's a planned, arti- I'm going to say it's artificial. It's a planned artificial inflation of the property value which prices people out. Therefore, you have nowhere to go. Yeah. And I think that's what's causing the, the, the resurgence in crime in cities like D.C., while other places like New York are safer, um, and even in places like Charlotte, where the crime rate has doubled since I've been here. Right. I I don't like the idea of gentrification. I would rather see let's let's take some of these low income neighborhoods with you know dilapidated buildings and whatnot. I would rather see those areas 
rehabilitated while keeping the the same residence rather than because of course the rehabilitation is going to cost money so in order to recover that money you you get it from the people that live in the area well if their buildings are dilapidated and you know in just disrepair it it's it's not a good situation but i i would love to see some kind of laws or something something like that to where you can't kick more than, you know, 30, 40 percent of the population out of whatever area you're redeveloping. There, there should be some kind of clause in there saying that, yeah, you developers can come through here and develop, but we ain't pushing our residents out of here. Now, I'm not, of course, Anne's not here, so I'm not sure what language you could use for that. But I can also see like down here in New Orleans, the same thing Um, after Katrina, man. Did they gentrify like there's neighborhoods down here that, again, uh, using white folks would not step foot into. You would not catch them there day or night. They're living in these areas now. And these are areas that did not have uh, grocery stores. They did not have hospitals. They did not have doctor's offices, gas stations, hardly like there were no public services. There were no no stores, nothing. So now these areas have all of these things. There's a brand new hospital they built in the east. Um, there's all kinds of there's a Walmart now that they built in Gentilly. They, they, they're getting these services that they did not have, but it comes at a cost. So what it does is it creates jobs in the neighborhoods, which can be a good thing. But if you can't afford even with your newfound job, you can't afford to stay in the neighborhood. Does it really do a lot of good? Because now you have to move 20, 30 minutes away and then come back to your old neighborhood to go to work. I don't know. But I I do see the pros and cons. But I'm just not of the mind that I'd like to see people pretty much. I don't want to see an exodus of low income neighborhoods because these people already have a hard enough time living, living in the conditions they're in with no money. But now you're, you're pushing them out and saying, "Okay, take what little money you have and find somewhere else to live. It's not that easy. And a lot of these people actually end up homeless. Like New Orleans has a large homeless population. It just it skyrocketed after uh, Hurricane Katrina. They have tent cities set up under the Claiborne Bridge. It got so bad to one at one point they set up a tent city outside of City Hall. And they did that in, to protest. And uh, so there was this tent city outside of City Hall. And as you can imagine, that drove the mayor and government officials nuts. Like when you come to New Orleans, you can't see a homeless camp outside of City Hall. And it wasn't a small camp. It was a large camp. So um, they passed a new law, of course. It's like, hey, let's make a new law. Homeless people can't hang out outside. And then they came and sprayed all the homeless people with fire hoses and shit, tore down their tents and just pretty much tried to get them all out of there. But yeah, it's I again, like I said, I see the benefit, but I also see the people and the people are who I'm more worried about. Yeah, originally, some of these developments were created with good intention. This may surprise a lot of people, but initially when these public housing units were first built, I'm going to use Cabrini Green in Chicago as an example, even the ones in New Orleans, they were actually nice. They were designed, these public housing units were designed so low-income people can live with dignity. Um, you know, they had amenities, they were nice, well manicured. They started off nice, but once the 70s and 80s and crack hit, they just all went down the tank. Government stopped funding them, they stopped repairing, they stopped 
tending to them. It's almost like they wanted them to fail so at some point they could have an excuse to tear stuff down. And, Dan, I don't know if you remember, when I first came to New Orleans, I remember saying, man, this city's a gold mine if they, would get, if, if they wanted to get rid of all of these uh, low-income neighborhoods. And I'm not saying they should have. What I'm saying is if New Orleans, the city had a lot of potential, and New Orleans recognized that. So instead of doing like maybe neighborhoods and areas, you know, did back in the 40s and 50s, they built these public housing units for returning war vets, for low-income people to help out, put jobs in the community, make the neighborhoods that were, you know, dilapidated, make them nicer. The new way is just to abandon them, or like after Katrina, just don't bring any infrastructure back to the areas that lost it during the floods, knowing that people aren't going to come back. Right. Then you have the right to take the land back. You can use eminent domain. Um, you can stretch the meaning of eminent domain to justify tearing down people's houses. You can snatch properties for technicalities like, oh, you haven't cut your grass in 30 days, our property now, you relinquish your rights. And that's how they do it. And that's how a lot of these areas are starting to do now, even back in D.C. Um, you know, they're just justifying putting people out on the street by basic little technicalities or enforcing rules that they either, you know, were lenient with originally, such as, you know, doing smoking weed on a public housing property mm-hmm. or Section 8 property, or, or they just never enforced before. And that's where the issue goes, you know. Uh, it changes from being a, a decent thing to help rehab communities for the people actually living there versus fixing up a community to appeal to the people who don't live there yet. And that's what gentrification pretty much is all about, fixing it up for the people who don't live there yet. Yeah. Pretty much, man. Um, so what I also want to get into is I ran a Twitter poll and what I asked was, is gentrification another form of white supremacy? So the Twitter results were 78% of people that took the poll said yes. 22% said no. Uh, Paul, your thoughts on that? Well, technically, yes, um, but I have a uh, fear that some people don't encompass the term white supremacy to, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, don't define the term white supremacy to encompass as many things as it actually does. Many people think it's all about violence, when in actuality, white supremacy is also about uh, economic supremacy, you know, class uh, division, unfair lending and real estate practices. This is, this is what was going on back in the 40s and 30s and 20s during Jim Crow before Fair Housing Acts were passed uh, to keep you know, un- so-called undesirables away from white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, white flight is an example when black people moved into the cities, particularly when they started to build these public housing units to attract lower income people to come work in the cities, white people left moved to the suburbs. Now that these, you know, poor people moved up in the world and started to move to the suburbs, what do you see? You see white flight back into the city, and this is why you have gentrification in urban environments. So in that respect, I believe it is. Um, but we can't say it's the same type of white supremacy as just violence, which so many people may think. This is not illegal white supremacy. Let, let's be real. Even though we see cops and stuff get away, we see white people get away with brutalizing minorities and black people so frequently, it's still against the law to do so versus mm-hmm. gentrification, where it is pretty much white supremacy and segregation done through the power of the law, within the law, which gives the people not any, no leg to stand on, which even though it may not be as dangerous for our life as it used to be back before, you know, 
we can get murdered and not have any uh, justice. Mm-hmm. I would almost want to say that this is almost more dangerous because now, like you stated to Dan, alluded, alluded to Dan, we, people are homeless. You have nowhere to go. You have no job. You, you put a situation where, like, where are you supposed to go in the D.C. area? West Virginia? Right. Uh, outside of uh, Richmond? That's, that's, that's pretty far. All right, so I'm going to agree with everyone in the Twitter poll in saying that gentrification is a form of white supremacy. And my premise is just simply this. You come and invade these neighborhoods, basically. Yeah, you're doing it within the law, but you're still invading, you're plummeting. And that's, I think, what white folks do real well. They invade, plummet, conquer so that's what they do. And I consider gentrification 100 percent white, white supremacy, especially when I can no longer walk around in these neighborhoods and feel safe. And what's funny is I felt safe when they were bad neighborhoods and I was walking around in them. But now I'm walking around in them and they're gentrified. I'm getting the cops called on me. I'm getting stares like, hey, hey, nigger, you don't belong here in this neighborhood. But yet they put up this front like they're so progressive. Yeah, we're, we're super liberal, super progressive people. They don't want niggas around the way. No, it's easy to love us from afar. I, I, I noticed the thing that I didn't like back in Alexandria where a lot of the things that are getting torn down and rebuilt in black areas, formerly black areas, they're being named after black people like Samuel Tucker, um, elementary school. You know, they rebuilt Charles Houston wreck. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the thing is, you know, a lot of these things, they, they have a street in a brand new um, townhouse development that they tore down the burg for. That was a public housing neighborhood near the river, they call it Yule Street, which is the first black mayor in Alexandria, Bill Yule. So they tear down our, you know, areas where we used to live, kick us out and name stuff after black folk. Hey. It's like, and when we yeah, were it's living, like, wow, you, yeah, you can love us from far away, but when we're there, you, you hate us. When we were living there, they named everything after Confederates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sure did. Let's jump into Berry Farms or some quarter. Some uh some of the again DC gentrification shit in DC. If you if you lived in or around the DC Maryland Virginia area, I'm sure you're quite familiar with Berry Farm, and that's a one of the larger public housing projects in DC. They're slated to be torn down, and what happened was a developer came in and said, "Yeah." This land looks real good right here because everybody else then built up other shit all around in this area. So, you know what? I want that land. So, the developer goes to the city of D.C. and goes to some housing commission or whatever and says, all right, let us buy this land from you. I don't know how much it was. Let me just throw a number out here. Say $100 million. Give you $100 million for this land. So, D.C. said... All right. As long as everyone else is cool with it. So everyone else signed off and said, all right, we're about to tear Berry Farms projects down. There's four hundred and forty two households in Berry Farms, something like that. Um, So now they're telling these families, you got to go get the fuck out of here. And they started condemning units too, saying that they're uninhabitable. So the uh, group of residents, a group of families, what they what they were promised is. Yes, when we build these nice high-rise condos, we're going to have 1,400 and some odd units. We're going to have a shopping gallery in the bottom. And what we'll do is we'll give some of these lower income, we'll make it a mixed income building. And we'll give some of these lower income families an opportunity to come back and live here. These are one and two bedroom um, apartments. None of them. I don't think there was anything bigger than a two bedroom. So you're looking at the families in the projects who have 
four or five kids, they can't come live in a two bedroom apartment. So they sued. They got a lawyer and they sued the city saying, um, well, basically what they what they said was you're discriminating against us because you're not offering us a comparable place to live. So there's a hold on it now. The courts actually ruled in favor of the Berry Farms residents, but that doesn't mean they're still not getting kicked out. They're still kicking families out. Even though the project is on hold, they're still getting families the fuck out of here. What they're using now is they're saying, okay, even though the project's on hold, who knows what's going to happen with this project? It may never happen, but these places are they're not livable. There's rodents, there's rats, there's uh, roaches, there's all kinds of problems with the plumbing. So you guys still have to go. And now they're kicking these people out without promising them, without the promise of whatever's built here, you may have an opportunity to come back. So that that's how I kind of view the the whole Berry Farms thing after reading about it. Uh, not Not really sure how the people in the area feel about it, but I think it's kind of fucked up. They don't a sign, a sign of the times that Barry Farms days were numbered was when they built National Stadium right across the, the Anacostia and, you know, all the old go-go clubs over there, the east side. You had the neighborhoods, Greenleaf Gardens. I think those are gone now. Uh, they built the wharf. They built high-rises on the wharf. That whole area changed, so it kind of got to Barry Farms last, but um, even though they've been fighting in court for a while now, that neighborhood is as good as done. You know, no matter what they're going to do, no matter how they're going to fight, they're not going to win. And everybody's going to get like, you know, even though it's been on hold, they're going to win. And yeah. when they tear it down, that whole area, I mean, that that's, Anacostia is one of the most historic black neighborhoods in the United States of America. And it, the days are numbered over there near Good Hope Road. You know, all that stuff is just getting ready to go. Yeah. And another interesting thing, I'm not familiar with this because I've, I'm much further removed from D.C. than Paul is. But uh, you were saying that there's something, there was something that happened with Sursum Quarter? Yeah, Sursum Quarter is an old neighborhood. Um, you know, I, I said something earlier about how a lot of these original neighborhoods um, were founded with good intention, and Sursum Quarter is one of them. Sursum Quarter is Latin for lift up our hearts. And um, it was founded by actually a Roman Catholic um, diocese, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Roman Catholic High School, Gonzaga College High School in D.C., and the parish, St. Aloysius Parish. So they, you know, during the 60s, um, in the 50s and the 60s, the United States government housing and urban development was given loans to build houses for displaced households. The land that uh, Sursum Quarter is on now was an old Irish neighborhood um, that was, you know, old and run down, and they and they torn it and they torn it down. So they needed places for these poor people all over the area to go. So the Catholic the Catholic Church that that parish founded in this neighborhood. So they owned, it was 199 units in that neighborhood. Um, some of them were owned. I think 44 were for rent and 155 were resident owned. So that's, it's a co-op, meaning, you know, while some were funded by HUD and, and it was partially funded by housing and urban development, there were still owners of some of the buildings. You know, the neighborhood was great. They had people from Georgetown come to their children in the neighborhood. Uh, it was well it was well manicured. They had nice amenities, garbage disposals, washer and dryer, and the rent was only 25% of your income. Problem is, this 80s came, crack hit. Um, it was in decline. It was one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the United States, period. I'm sorry, in Washington, D.C. Well, in the 80s, if you were one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in D.C., you're one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the country. So people started to look at that and say, you know, something needs to change. So um, late 90s, early 2000s, they started to investigate how they can maybe – uh, get that property back. 
Um, and that property is off of uh, New York Avenue near First Street, and that area has been totally gentrified since 2001. Um, they've been in a fight with the, the, the um, owners of Thurston Quarter, a lot of the units, for many, many years. It's like you own stock, so you can't, they can't take the property and build the property unless you ne without negotiating. So mm -hmm. you say that Barry Farms was sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. The thing about Thurston Quarter was it actually, the entire neighborhood just sold, uh, I want to say either this year or last year, for only $60 million. However, seeing as though the, the, the residents who owned the properties were in negotiation, they couldn't do that unless they agreed. So they secured further housing for them once the neighborhood was, is going to be torn down and redeveloped. I think they wanted to be like 500-something units or something like that. So the people that live there have a place to go, the owners. Now, I don't know about the ones that were renters. I don't know if they have anywhere to go. I'm sure they're going to probably give 100 or 200, uh, you know, I'm sorry, not that much, a small fraction of units to some of the residents in there for rent. But as of right now, the neighborhood is now vacant. It's still sitting there, but um, it's been purchased for $60 million and it's getting ready to go. Um, but what makes that story unique is it was a co-op. So even though these people were poor and it was semi-public housing, they were in a situation where they couldn't just get bought out and removed from the property like so many other areas right so they actually so they were able to negotiate their way out of it and and, and make make good they got money for their units seeing as though it was a co-op and many of the people own those units so um they made out that's actually a fairly decent story um you don't hear many stories like that throughout gentrification just like you mentioned with barry farms a second ago yeah and uh, another one is down here in new orleans and uh before we wrap up the show i kind of want to give some price points too but um i'm gonna use it's it's basically paul's example there a developer came in they saw an old warehouse they wanted to turn it into these trendy apartments they had to get a grant from the city in order to do something so the city said okay we'll give you this grant for your building as long as you have x number of low income um units and this would need to last at least 10 years so developers said okay cool gotcha they build these trendy ass apartments it's called the american can company they're, they're nice uh polished concrete floors these huge ceilings kind of got an industrial look to it lost and shit um the rent for a regular person off the street was probably about 15 1600 bucks a month which is pretty high for what people that were born and raised in new orleans um are used to paying so then they had the low-income units for the people that were either on section eight or like paul mentioned uh, uh you pay a portion of whatever your income is so those buildings went up or the american can secured the building in 2006 and in at the end of 2016 uh like i want to say a hundred residents got notices saying okay your rent's now gonna go up from 480 dollars a month to 1800 dollars a month and of course they can't pay this shit because they're either on section eight or you know low low income housing so these people are like well shit where the fuck am i supposed to go and the rest of the city has its i mean new orleans is mirroring dc it's to the point where now you don't you don't really have very many options as far as low-income housing so these people are like where, where the fuck do we go i mean we can't we can't move to the projects because they make a little too much money to live in the projects or they don't have children 
like one guy that comes to mind was a 70 something odd year old uh war veteran vietnam war veteran and he's like i can't afford to live anywhere else so they got an attorney and now they it's, it's like an ugly thing in court but eventually i think the american can company ended up extending extending it a little bit but sooner or later y'all gotta get the fuck out of here and now all these units that y'all lived in, we're going to rent those out for seventeen, eighteen hundred dollars a month. And we good. So that's that's pretty much the opposite of what happened in Sursum Quarter. It's like, yeah, they came to an agreement with the city rather than rather than the city and the residents. And now that that agreement has been fulfilled, it's like, all right, y'all got to go. Y'all got to go. Nowhere else to go. So here's another thing to think about, too. Um, for those of you who live in or have lived in um, poor neighborhoods, low income neighborhoods, a lot a lot of the times, you know, you hear people out here saying, yeah, y'all fighting over blocks that ain't y'all's. Y'all fighting over these streets that ain't y'all's. The hood don't love y'all, which is all true. But um, you can't take people from one certain low income neighborhood and move them into another because the chances are. It, in our culture, it's just how it goes. We're beefing, you know, like the I can't really give an example off the top of my head, but kids in my neighborhood were beefing with the kids in the projects always. They could not go and live in the projects because they would get fucked up every single day. Like you can't do that. They they might even uh, yeah. get damn killed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, I, I said something about that earlier about the crime rates going up. For example, Charlotte, D.C., about four years ago, D.C. was under 100 murders for the first time in 50 years. And everybody was happy, like, oh, wow, D.C.'s changing. Everyone thought gentrification had won. But now, here we are, last year there was 136 murders. And then right now, at this point, right now, this year, I think there are 115. It's funny because people think the city's overall safer, and it looks safer because the crime isn't as spread out. I mean, we used to have 500 murders plus every year in a city of 300,000 people. However... Like in Charlotte, we've seen the crime rate grow up. When I first moved here, we had about 30 murders a year. Now I think we're approaching 100. You're putting people in neighborhoods that otherwise would have never come in contact with each other. You know, and now, you know, also we got to look at, I'm, I'm not trying to turn this into social media, but connectivity with other people is, is a lot more easy. You know, uh, transportation is a lot easier. So people are in contact that otherwise wouldn't have been in contact with each other before. And these, I'm not saying this is right. But if you have a lot of people who are poor and desperate and have nowhere to go and you've been relocated from somewhere you've been for a long time, you're probably even more desperate. I know everyone wants to say, oh, get a job, this and that, but there are never any grocery stores. There are never any jobs. There's never nowhere to go. People violate laws. People are desperate. People want what they don't have. If you have it, they'll take it. So they start to fight over seemingly meaningless things. And that's where the violence ends up coming back. And it, in a way, it becomes more violent, even though it's in smaller pockets, because now, you know, you have you've added more people to a certain area that used to kind of be self-sustaining, fairly safe. Everyone knew each other. And it's almost like you have to fight where you live at. And that's a to that's like a new phenomenon now that we're seeing in a lot of cities. In a lot of these areas, they, they weren't designed to accommodate the influx of people. And um, but going back to New Orleans, there was I think this was right before Katrina, actually, the St. Thomas projects. Um, they tore down the St. Thomas projects. And if you're in public housing, you're in public housing. So you're just going to get moved to another project. They moved these people and the, there was a lot of. Man, projects in New Orleans don't get along. So they moved these people from the St. Thomas project to the Calio project, to the Lafitte projects, to um, just, you know, spread them out to different projects. 
man, the spike in violence and murders and crime in those areas shot up exponentially. It was crazy. I mean, there was like two or three murders a day for a while. So moving these families out, it's dangerous. And then again, like Paul was saying too, moving families, moving out to these other areas, like I use back home in DC, Woodbridge for an example, Woodbridge was not designed to accommodate the number of people that are living there right now. It just wasn't. And now in, in that area, even like just the DC area overall, you're building up because you're running out of land. So you have to build towards the fucking sky to get more, uh, more real estate space. So yeah, you're overcrowding these areas and then you, you're bringing people in from again, these high crime, low, low income neighborhoods. And you're mixing them in with people like Paul said, who normally wouldn't have contact with these people. So yeah, it, I remember back in the day driving through Woodbridge saying everyone who lives out here, Man, these niggas some bitches out here. These some bitch-ass niggas out here in Woodbridge, man. Fuck these niggas, man. And we used to go out there and fuck with people <laughs> just riding around going to their little neighborhoods. I wouldn't dare do that shit now because most of them niggas from D.C., most of them niggas from P.G. County. Like, you know, you, you, you just can't, you don't know where anybody's from anymore. All right, so moving on, uh, fighting gentrification. Can you fight gentrification when you see it happening? Can you fight it? What what are some things that people can do to, if not prevent it, at least slow it down? Are you familiar with any, Paul? There are a few ways you can fight it. And sadly, as with many things that can help poor people, it's not widely known. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a couple ways besides, besides the easy, you know, you, you know, way of knowing your rights. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing. Um, in cases where you live in a distressed property, um, you know, there are grants out there. Maybe a lot of people don't know this, but in a lot of cities, if you, you can apply for grants from the city or from the state and even from housing and urban development for grants to, re, re, uh, you know, rehabilitate your house, you know, a lot of people that are investors get these kind of grants and loans for investment properties under the stipulation that you stay there for a certain period of time. But, if you, you know, that, that's also open to people who live there. So you may be tempted to sell your house if someone knocks on your door with cash up front because you feel as though you can't, you know, fix that house up or rehab it. But there are grants out there to help fix distressed properties so, you know, some of these neighborhoods can keep their residents in. But another way and probably the easiest, most um, directly relatable way to people now is you've got to know your rights. Every area has, every state has their own, you know, laws for landlord-tenant relations. Um, you know, sometimes it's as simple as just reading your lease. Um, you know, I, I was looking at a website called VirginiaLegalAid.org. They tell you a lot of your rights as a, as a tenant, whether you be a Section 8 subsidized housing or public housing. And simply put, man, um, know your rights. You know, know, know your, just because someone tells you you have to leave, that's not always true. The first thing they recommend is do not rent on a verbal agreement. That is a big mistake. And they say that, that, that you know, that is never a good thing to do because mm-hmm. it's easy to prove that they, um, you know, it's not hard to prove one way or the other that either that they told you you have to leave or vice versa. Um, so you always want something in writing. Um, you know, just one example, I know a lot of people have issues with if you're renting from a private, a private renter or even an even a apartment complex. If they decide to sell that property to another owner, whether it be an apartment complex selling to a, another uh, company to convert them to condos or whether they be a private citizen you know, selling to another owner, in many states, and in, in Virginia, for example, those same rights that you have as a renter transfer over to that new owner. They can't put you out just because they sell that house. 
Um, Damn. You know, they you have the right to stay there. The transfer is over. So, you know, they would have to give you written notice. Just like if you're a lease state, you have to give 60 days written notice or 30 days notice before you leave. They have to give you that same notice before they put you out. They can't put you out in the middle of the year. Um, they can't just state, uh, you know, okay, I'm selling this. You got to go even though your lease is still has six months on it. Um, and if that happens, then you have the right to ask for uh, money, relocation fees, things like that. So always make sure you read that lease. Um, you know, you, you must get 30, you must get at least 30 days written in Virginia before you can leave a property. And, um, you know, re renewing your lease is the same way. You know, if you go month to month, they still have to give you 30 days. If you have a year, uh, some people have leases for a year. If you have a lease for a whole year, they cannot kick you out prior to 90 days. They cannot give you a notice prior to 90 days um, of remaining your lease, meaning you can only be asked to vacate if you only have 90 days or less on your lease. So just know those things. They try to intimidate you. Um, I know one tactic is they'll not fix stuff up. They'll lock you out of your house, your apartment. They'll, uh, you know, uh, neglect it. That's against the law. Um, if they do that, then you have the right to go to the court and put your rent in escrow. That's simply, simply put, that's putting your money, paying your rent through the court um, until they fix these things. They have, to, they have to uphold the property. They can't lock you out, cut off your utilities or anything unless they tell you in advance, and, you must, and they must have a valid reason for it, like you broke the law. Um, and if you broke the law, they don't have to uh, allow you to stay there. They can break your lease at that point, too. So um, just know your rights. Most every state... Um, you know, has variations of these laws, especially when it comes to someone saying we sold the place and you have to leave. Um, you have the same rights to the new owner, and the new owner must then decide to determine are they going to keep you or are they going to let you go, and they still have to honor that original lease that you signed from the first owner before it transferred over. So make sure you make sure you read that lease and you keep a copy and you stay up to date on your rights. See, I think that might be different in Louisiana. I believe I, if you buy a property that has a tenant that you can require that the original owner have the tenants removed upon uh pretty much you you receiving the house so there's something they can do there's some kind of loophole or something that they can use to basically kick your ass out that's uh that's down here though um uh one thing that i did here that i kind of wanted to bring up is i know a lot of people that do this Landlord didn't fix the AC. Landlord didn't fix the plumbing in a timely fashion. So you know what? This month, I ain't paying my rent because fuck that. I ain't paying for this fucked up ass house. I ain't got no AC. I ain't got no plumbing. Yo, you're going to get your ass evicted not paying your rent just because the place is fucked up. You can't withhold your rent from the landlord. So like Paul said, you can go and put it into an escrow. And what will happen is that money will build up in that escrow and the court... Uh, correct me if i'm wrong paul the court will pretty much assign someone to go out check out the conditions of the property and say okay this this and this needs to be fixed you're not getting any money out of this escrow account until these things are fixed and you have x amount of days to do so so don't withhold your rent just because the place is fucked up because you'll end up fucking up your credit if you you know if you're worried about your credit score um you end up getting evicted either way even if even though the house was not maintained properly by you not paying your rent you'll still get evicted so that that's something i know a lot of people do don't do that um some of the things i can think of as far as gentrification goes how to stop it 
is you, in the evenings, like when you get off of work, you know, call some of your friends up and y'all just go sit out on some random stoops with some beers in your hands. Um, maybe have a gun just kind of laying around. Uh, bandanas. Bandanas are always good, like blue or red. Doesn't matter. But everyone has to have the same color bandana because it'll look silly if you're out there with, you know, half the guys wearing blue, half the guys wearing red. It don't work like that. So, uh, yeah, hang out. Stand out on the corner. Harass people. There's, you know, as long as it's not some me too type of shit, harassment's okay. You know, someone comes riding down looking at a property. They see a for sale sign in the yard. Be like, hey, fuck you doing over there? You want to buy some crack and stuff like that? You know, that that'll help slow down the gentrification because you'll scare the shit out of people, even though I think there's laws against that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's what I'd add to it, because I'm starting to see a lot in a lot of these gentrified neighborhoods in New York, in uh, D.C., in New Orleans, even uh, in in Alexandria, Virginia. It's like the crime is starting to spill over into these areas and. That's always a red flag for people who want to gentrify is crime. So as much as I'm not saying artificially increase the crime in your neighborhood, I'm saying artificially increase the crime because perception is reality. So if this looks like a bad neighborhood, we're going to keep moving. But um, another thing that we did down here in New Orleans, once we saw what the real estate was doing and what the landscape was. It's like our rent was going up, going up, going up. You used to be able to rent a one bedroom apartment in New Orleans, in the suburbs, not in the hood. Um, and not, it wasn't low income housing either. It was about $450 a month for a one bedroom apartment. Um, prior to, this was prior to Katrina. After Katrina, one bedroom shot up to about $750 a month, which is more on par with the rest of the nation at the time. However, our income was not. Um, then rents shot up again a couple years after that. Katrina was in 05. So by 2009, places that were renting for about 450 bucks a month were now renting for $1,000 a month. Um, and again, this is all suburbia here. Uh, same thing was happening in the city, but it, it was on uh, the disparity was a lot bigger. But um, yeah, so we saw our rent go up $100 a year for year after year after year after year to where we were paying about $1,200 a month for a one bedroom apartment. It was in a you know decent, decent neighborhood, decent area. Uh, but once we realized we're paying $1,200 a month, we're like, fuck that. We can buy a house in the same area. Houses here about $250,000 in the suburbs. So it's like you can buy a house, put 20% down, and your mortgage will be about $1,100 a month. So you're saving $100. This was our thinking. Now we're homeowners. We own a home in the suburbs in a decent area. And the value in that is this. During during the a boom, your property value is going to increase. The suburbs look great to people who don't want to live in the city, people with money who don't want to live in the city, who have families, they want to move to the suburbs. So this 200 and I'm just throwing this number out here. Uh, this $250,000 house in a couple of years is going to be worth 300. A couple of years after that, 320, 330. So that that's one way you can protect yourself against gentrification. If the if 
it's early in the in the stages, buy a house. Doesn't even have to be in the areas that are being gentrified. Buy a house because as long as you don't buy a house in the hood, well, actually, shit, maybe even buy a house in the hood. But the gentrification around you is going to um, lift you. Your property value is going to just by proxy go up. So there's that. That's one way you can protect yourself if you have it. Buy a house. Uh, what do you think about that, Paul? I do, I do have some info on Louisiana, um, going back to what you said a second ago about the laws there. Mm-hmm. Louisiana is one of those states where they don't care about you, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> um, I got some info real quick. Um, most states and states I've lived in have a five-day grace period to pay your rent before they can take you to court. Louisiana does not have that five-day grace period. Uh, most states, you must give at least 30 days before they can evict you or put you out. In Louisiana, if you... They can, they can evict you if you don't pay your rent, meaning if you don't pay your rent by the last day of the month, they can evict you. They give you five days notice, um, you know, as a minimum if, if, if you don't pay the rent, or they can evict you on 10 days notice for other reasons. Uh, another issue at Louisiana that many people may not know, many people may not know of is um, recording your lease with the parish. <laughs> that, that sounds strange, and I had to look it up. Um, oh, yeah, that's You know a law... Well, you know a law is messed up if they say they shouldn't be able to. This is LouisianaLawHelp.org. They say if you do not have a lease, um, your rights as a tenant to stay in your apartment. This, this is if your landlord sells your apartment. If you don't have a lease or a verbal lease, your, your right to stay as a tenant will end with the sale. The new owner, it says this, the new owner should let you stay for at least as long as you've paid for. However, if the new owner does accept any rent from you, then you have a case to say you have a new tenancy um, you know, which pretty much puts you on month to month. So definitely know that if they accept money from you and you record it, then they, you know, they can't just put you out with five days notice. Um, but the other issue that kind of contradicts that is if you are on a month to month lease, they can still put you out with five to 10 days notice. So even if they accept you as month to month, they only have to give you 10 days notice to put you out. Um, another issue is if you did not record your lease um, in the event of your landlord selling, you only have the right to stay until the end of your lease, um, the lease term if the landlord sold the building um, with the requirement that the lease be honored by the new owner. So mm-hmm. if you didn't record your lease with the parish, the new owner has no obligation, and you should not even expect to be able to stay in that property when it's transferred over. Now, if you did record your lease, then you can have an option in court. But like you said a minute ago, Dan, um, Louisiana pretty much can do whatever they want. Yeah. <laughs> they can put you out whenever they want. And there's not much you can do in states like Louisiana. Man, and going as far as recording your lease, we actually looked into that just just to see because it was actually in one of the leases. So we called the Jefferson Paris uh, clerk of court. It was like, hey, uh, what do you have to do to record your lease? It was like, oh, you just bring a copy of it down here and pay us like a hundred dollars. <laughs> like, man, Jesus, like, no. <laughs> um, that is that's excessive to ask people for, especially when you got lower income people in a city with rising rents that probably have to pay first and last month's rent and a security deposit to get there. When are they supposed to come up with a hundred extra dollars to pay for that? Right. You know, to pay for that seemingly unnecessary expense. You know, that that that's just a setup. Wow. Man. Man, and what they're doing here too is since in in the DC area again to compare the two, you you're looking at well in DC it's north, south, and west. Those are the directions you can go. In New Orleans, you can't go north or south because you got a lake <laughs> at the north and the river at the south, or vice versa. Um, so you can only go east and west, and it's not like the landscape. It's it's hard to describe, but it's like a it's rectangle. Crescent City for a reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You 
you're not the suburbs of New Orleans are so close to New Orleans. I mean, you're talking about five minutes to one suburb, five minutes to the suburb beyond that. So people are being pushed further out. They're all going right now to the east, which is one of the areas that didn't have a lot of uh, infrastructure, a lot of services and things like that. Now the east is starting to get uh, gentrified. So you're pushing people further east, which gets you, Paul, I'm sure you're familiar with the twin spans. Um, you're at the foot of the twin span and there's only one other place to go. And that's 30, like what? I don't know what the twin span is like 17 miles or something over a body of water to the other side well, to then, Slidell. Well, and then if you go West, then you got to go over that long bridge to get to Laplace and who wants to go there? Yeah, exactly. So both ways you have to go over a bridge that is miles and miles and miles and miles long. There's no public, uh, transportation that'll get you back and forth. So the residents are the low income residents are either homeless or they're being pushed further east and west. And eventually they're going to be pushed out of the suburbs and into obscurity, because once you get into Slidell and Laplace and places like that, I'm sure people who are listening right now have never heard of those places unless you're from Louisiana. (laughs) That's yeah, you're you're in relative obscurity. So that's it's not a good it's not a good thing. So getting into Ask an attorney, even though we don't have one. Me and Paul about to answer this. Um, ask an attorney. Full disclosure, attorney, I am attorney, not an attorney. Attorney, attorney. <laughs> I just purchased a house that came with a tenant. Per our mortgage agreement, we can't have a tenant for one year. In our contract to buy the house, it states that the seller was to give 30 days notice to the tenant on a specific date. The landlord did do that, kind of. He gave the tenant an additional three days. The tenant is also letting us know that they don't know when they'll be able to afford to move out. According to our real estate agent, the seller will be in breach of contract as of tomorrow. We are first time homebuyers. What does this mean for us as a buyer? It might come to pass that we have to evict the tenant. According to what we have seen so far, the rental agreement is terminated when a buyer takes over the house. Would we follow standard eviction procedures? We found that we found the rules for evicting, but we're not sure if we're considered the tenant's landlords or not. Um, I'd say kick their asses out. No, what I'd say is plain and simple. Do not accept the house with the tenant still in it if that is part of your agreement. If your agreement says you'll get this property and the tenant will not be here, I'd, I'd have to agree with your real estate agent and say that, yeah, they're violating the contract. So I wouldn't take possession of the house personally with the tenant still in there because it's hard enough moving. You got to move and schedule all this shit, get utilities turned on. Like, man, I ain't got the time to be dealing with some motherfuckers living in a house that ain't supposed to be there. So I tell the, the seller, hey, you get the motherfuckers out of my house. Uh, Paul, what's, what's your take? Well, first, I'd go back to what we said a minute ago. Check the, the, the landlord-tenant relations laws in your state, because if you have a state like Louisiana, then you can just say, hey, you got 10 days um, since the transfer purchase. But the problem I have with this is typically when you buy a house, your lender and, you know, they won't allow and your real estate agent, and your lender won't allow you to even be in a situation like that. So how did that even happen is what I don't understand. How could your lender, whoever gave you the mortgage and your real estate agent, ignore that glaring issue because now you're in a situation where it's either going to have to be the sale is going to have to be canceled and it has going to have to revert back to the original owner because if you're in a state where you just can't evict um you know the tenants that were already there then 
you're not in a situation where you have anything that you could possibly do. Because if it's in a violation, like what, within a day or two, then you can't give them 90 days. You can't give them 60 days or 30 days. So what I'd like to know is how, <laughs> I can't answer this question because I don't understand. First, okay, let me go back. I would probably talk to a real estate lawyer to see what you can do regarding the real estate agent and the lender for even allowing something like that to happen in the first place because that could be seen as some sort of predatory lending. And also real estate agents and realtors, if you did buy from a certified realtor, they have laws that they have to abide by as well to keep their certification. So I would, I would check with a real estate lawyer to see if there's anything you can do because of negligence um, and, see, you know, on, the job, on the part of the lender and the uh, real estate agent because that seems like a situation that shouldn't even happen in the first place. Judging, judging by the, the information in the question, I don't think it would fall on the real estate agents if the seller's agent said, yeah, my client is going to kick these, you know, tell these people they have 30 days to move out. That's in the contract. Your real estate agent receives that contract. You both sign it. But then the seller says, well, I gave him a couple extra days. Uh, what do you expect me to do? So I, I don't think that the the onus would fall on either real estate agent just because it was in the contract. So, I mean, if it's in the contract, both parties are contractually obligated. So I well, would, yeah, if it's in a contract and the, and the seller decided to go outside of that contract, then that seller then breach a contact and uh, breach a contract. And then, you know, you can either just tell the seller, scrap the whole deal and get out of it and walk, yeah. you know, or try to take it to court. If I were that person, I would say I'm walking because that doesn't seem like a situation that's worth it. Because if they're going to lie about something like that, then who's the, who else, what else could they be hiding that you get into that place and then something else major could be wrong? So, you know, yeah. I, would, I would probably just walk away from that situation altogether. I, I definitely would. After knowing what I know now, after going through the <laughs> home buying process, shit, you fuck around and yeah, you they might evict the people. Then you get in there about two weeks later, he's like, what's that smell? Then you have a contractor come cut your wall open and like, how the fuck they got dead cats in the wall? Like, this ain't supposed to happen. <laughs> it, I mean, people do messed up stuff. People will patch up holes and not tell you and you know, that's supposed to be discovered in the in the inspections process. But in a situation like that, I mean, if it's in the contract and then you're getting something different when you when it's time for you to take ownership over, then that's breach of contract. And I, I would believe, now I'm not saying guarantee, but I would believe that any lawyer would take that case and, and, and it would be evident that you have every right to void that contract, seeing as though the seller voided it in the first place by breaching it um, and not being forthcoming with the, the tenants that were already in there. 100%. So don't take possession of the house unless the house is empty and the tenants are evicted as per the contract. Anything beyond that contract, y'all need to go back, go back to the uh, negotiating table and figure that shit out or just walk away, go find another house. And that could be a hard thing to do after going house shopping and finally fi finding the house that you want and you're bumping into these kinds of problems but it's better now than later so with that being said this has been another episode of black law and legal lies you can follow us on all platforms at black law podcast and i am dan your host today you can follow me at i am dan on drugs on twitter and instagram now i just i just started an instagram page and people asking me if it's a fake page you can follow paul at you can follow paul at black law podcast <laughs> <laughs> i don't really have anywhere i can be followed now outside of my personal page currently because i've um 
I haven't really been doing much, so um, I don't really know where I should say. What, sh- what should I say, Dan? Uh, let's just go with the old faithful TBC underscore. <laughs> <laughs> and I never say it because I never know what it is. <laughs> I always mess it up. Man, you probably forgot the password to that joint, too. Man, I forgot the password as soon as I made it. <laughs> Peace out, people.